Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz. Yes. I I have some shocking news. You're not going to believe this. Okay, I'm sitting down. Okay. Okay. So, remember all the drama and uh, fanfare about loading up the Javits Center, which there's got to be a joke here somewhere, but I, <laughs> I'm too tired to think of one. The Javits Center, which of course was the place of Hillary Clinton's um, inauguration or her celebratory. Failed, failed inauguration. <laughs> so remember how we saw the Javits Center being filled up with overflow hospital beds and ventilators at the ready and everything, you know, lined up to take in the tens of thousands of COVID-19 patients. Yes. And the USNS Comfort as well, how that's docked and ready ready to take in the other overflow hundreds of thousands of COVID. So anyway, <laughs> I know you're not going to believe this, but no one's there. What? It's I empty? <laughs> it's well, empty? Okay, it's not empty. There are 110 patients between the two of them. Wow. Wow. Are they treating like paper cuts now (laughs) and ankle sprains? I think they're probably treating coronavirus exhaustion cases. (laughs) If they started treating those people like us, it would be like overflowed in 12 minutes. Maybe they'll give like massages and pedicures, like (laughs) just, you know, just... A little bit of relaxation, de-stressing. That's amazing. I wonder how much that costs. You know, that is a great question. Um, How much have we paid to just over-prepare for this manufactured hysteria? That will just be one interesting data point among others when this is all said and done. Because at the same time, Liz, and this will be more shocking news, um, Andrew Cuomo today in his grandstanding, ludicrous, ridiculous presser where he said that this is worse than 9-11, if you can imagine that coming out of his mouth. Um, Hospitalizations, oh God, I don't want to hear his mouth. Um, Hospitalizations have dropped down to 200 net increase in hospitalizations. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, is it 14 more days, Julie? 14 more days. And then we're going to see it. It's going to happen. Why do you hate grandma? Like, what is your problem? I hate old people, right? <laughs> anyway, Liz and I are a little batty today because after surviving the Mueller probe <laughs> and FISAgate and impeachment, where we were still on fire, ready to go. This one is really, we're, we're tapped out. I'm going to start planning my vacation in November, like November 5th, like the vacation I'm going to take. And it, it's going to be, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to spare no, I'm going to spare no expense. I, I need to get away. I need to get away from the media. I need to get away from the news cycle. I may not come back depending on what the results of the election are. <laughs> <laughs> I may not be allowed back, um, but boy, I, I, yeah, it, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. You know, Liz, and when you think about what this week should have been, right? So this is obviously Holy Week, Passover. You know, people should be on their spring breaks. I'm down here in Florida. The beaches, hotels, restaurants should be packed with people enjoying this beautiful weather down here. Um, people like me who are golf enthusiasts uh, are should be, you know, anxiously awaiting the, I think, the most beautiful sports event that there is, which is the Masters. Um, so many things. And obviously the 17 million people plus who should be at their jobs who are not because of this. Um, and here we are under house arrest living under tyrannical governors and uh, health bureaucrats over what now looks like could be one of the biggest hope. I don't want to, I'm not, could be one of the most overblown health crises ever recorded in history. Well, we flatten the curve, Julie. <laughs> we flatten the curve. I want to flatten some curves. Yeah. We flatten the economy. <laughs> It's not in the economy. 
Um, so, listeners, we have a treat today. We have our friend Justin Hart, who has been, who is on Twitter, and you know, this also happened during the FISAgate uh, investigation. You have people on Twitter who aren't affiliated with, say, you know, one of the top-notch media outlets because they were ignoring the whole thing. But you had people on Twitter who were doing the hard digging, the solid investigative reporting on what was happening. And you see that unfolding with this as well. And Justin is one of those. He's been looking at the Murray model from the beginning, uh, exposing its early flaws, and now just its complete and utter failure. So Justin, welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. Ladies, Julie, Liz, great to be with you today. Uh, I'm here in San Diego. It's a little bit overcast, but it doesn't matter if it's overcast or sunny. I can't go out. I'm stuck here inside (laughs) for I don't know how long. And I'm going stir crazy, too. We're all there. Yes, we definitely are. Now, Justin, do you have kids that you're trying to task at the same time or are you? Yeah, absolutely. I I deserve a a, a, I, I need to take a second job in tech support. (laughs) <laughs> for my immediate family and my extended family, I have uh, I have seven kids, three from my 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 first wife, and, we, and most of those are older. My second wife, we have she has two from a previous marriage. I have two. We have two together. So <clears throat> here in the household, we've got four little girls. And, oh uh, man! Two wow. Two of them are on Zoom for uh, remote learning for their school, and the other two are on YouTube while we try to get work done at the same time. It's crazy. Oh, my God. All right. You well, know, we have no complaints. We <laughs> should give out awards after this is over to the level of stress and trauma that people have to go through. And it should be based on how many children you have and how old those children are. So you would get like a purple heart based on uh, well, what I'm hearing from you, because that's got to be rough. Well, more importantly, I saw a tweet from Andrew Yang, and, and he I think he had it right, too, which is anyone who comes out of this more fit than he went into it deserves a medal. Because, oh, my yeah. gosh, I, I need to do something. I mean, I, I think I'm just going to start my own uh, Weight Watchers franchise and I'll make a million dollars just here locally. Yeah. You know, that's no joke. That's actually will be a good business prospect after this is over because. Yeah. Post-COVID also- boot camp. You could do like a post-COVID boot camp thing. Well, look, I, I think this is, you know, one of the the sort of side pieces. We joke about it, but it's a, you know, it's a serious point of conjecture, which is to say, okay, well, you know, the government says, look, those most at risk for COVID-19 are those with comorbidities frequently stemming from obesity and lack of physical (laughs) exercise. So sit in your homes, do nothing for a few months, grow obese until we think you're ready to come out and face the virus. So true. You're definitely going to, if you don't have it now, you're going to have it soon. Absolutely. We're all going to have comorbidities by the time this thing is over. But I, I mean, that's a legitimate thing. You, I think uh, Jesse Kelly, is that really in relation to you, Julie? I, I, I get my, my wires crossed sometimes. No, people think that there are because he's he's brilliant and funny like me, but also uh, tall. Like he's I, so yeah. tall, so, Julie. He's tall. like the tallest person. I mean, tall. I'm tall. I'm almost 5'10", but I am and I'm like. Wow, you're, but my tallness does not come from the Kellys, obviously, because that's my married name. My tallness comes from my waspy Midwestern lineage. So, well, um, you know, he, he pointed out, he pointed out that, you know, in that Midwest, in Indiana, you know, the the, the suicide hotline 211 went from 1,000 calls a day to 25,000 calls oh. a day. And, you know, those are legit things that you need to look at very strongly to understand what impact this had. I really think uh, I saw some news that, uh, you know, the president was considering uh, Art Laffer or someone was for heading up a task force, reopening us up. Thankfully, they're talking about a lot of that. I think that's great. Uh, But, you know, there is a Laffer curve to this whole thing. You know, the Laffer curve basically said that, you know, at a certain point you tax people out of efficiency and they just go, why would I work when I'm giving all my money to the, to the government? I think there's a Laffer curve for this COVID-19 shutdown, which is to say, I know you feel like you're getting certain benefits, government, from having a shutdown, but at some point, I can see my plow in the field outside. It's growing rusty, and the crops are dying around it, and you won't let me get to it. And that really is the problem. I saw a lot of you know people that that I that I trust and, and like, and I know personally, uh, Hugh Hewitt and other pundits, uh, Liz Cheney, talking about the Democrats are blocking the bill that will provide loan money to small businesses. I'm like, no, no. 
let's let's be absolutely clear about this. I get the Democrats are doing that, but you, the government, and and frankly, President Trump are me from earning living. And That's at right. some point, the risk reward ratio flips, right? Where we understand the benefits, and when you get to a certain point, when your family is going to be borderline destitute, perhaps kicked out of your home, certainly thinking about budgets for food, and that $1,200 maybe comes, maybe doesn't into your bank account, you're thinking, no, my job just became an essential job. I'm going to make it so. And I think we're just about to that point. Well, I think the government is intentionally withholding information from the public so that people can make the best decisions for themselves about how to treat this situation. And I know they they don't want people making up their own minds about how to treat the situation. Like, for instance, in my case, I'm not really at a particularly high risk, but my mother is. So my mother is in Las Vegas. She's 78. She has every freaking thing that makes you a target for, you know, makes it you in trouble. So she's basically been quarantined for a month. That's fine as she should be. But what about all the people that don't fit that that characterization? Well, we don't really have enough information from the government, which and they absolutely have this information, which is how many people are dying, what age how old are they? What are their other medical conditions? Where are they located? So these are the kinds of this is the kind of information people need to make informed decisions about what's best for them. And I think the government would much rather um, have us just follow their dictates. And if they give us that information, it makes it hard for people to follow their orders. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the good news is there's good news and bad news, right? The good news is, is that the doomsday predictions of 100,000 to 200,000 or 2 million deaths from COVID was vastly overstated. And with the exception of a few legitimate hotspots, I mean, what's happened in New York City is just awful. What they experienced over the last two weeks was really dreadful. And I know there, you know, but there, there were some legit hotspot issues. I mean, 10% of all the deaths in the country came from like one borough there in New York, right? That's and right. half of all the deaths in the country came from New York. But, you know, that's also, there's a flip side to that, right? Whereas the rest of us seem to be managing and handling it pretty well, the deaths and the burdens of the hospitals are moving so low that you have to question aloud, did we really need to bet the farm on this and lose 10 million, another half million jobs today, or in, in the process, or you know, could we have absorbed the blow? That's really what it comes down to is looking back at it, because at some point, that gap between the projection of the models and where we were going to go and the reality on the ground grows so far that you can't just explain that away with you know some backtracking on social distancing and shutdowns. There was a legitimate miscalculation and we bet the farm on it. Well, how was it? Okay, so when you say legitimate calculation, but what how was this these how were these models create even created? I mean I know a little bit about modeling and Julie knows I've said from the beginning that I think that they were garbage because I have absolutely no idea how they how they came up with them. Well, it's funny. So my, myself, um, Aaron Ginch, who's been out there, Aaron Ginch is, is actually Aaron and I worked together. He worked for me on the on the Romney campaign. So we knew each other way far back. And uh, oh, I, wait, I remember, wait, wait, wait. You worked on the Romney campaign? Yes, I was the uh, digital director of the Romney campaign for a bit there up until 2012. I came uh-huh. right at the last little bit there, right towards the end, trying oh. to to save their butts. So all right, yeah. we'll, we'll let that slide. <laughs> oh, we have we we could we could do a whole episode on 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 that crapshoot, but we'll get to that <laughs> at some point. And I and you know, right. I, uh, I anyway, we'll go into that at another point. But but here's the deal: what what happened was they it really is fundamentally a funnel issue. Now you know I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, but when I saw what was going on as far as comparing it to different diseases and comparing sort of what we call the burden categories, okay, which is how many people have symptoms, how many people visit the doctor, how many of those are hospitalized in between there, how many people test positive for like, let's say, influenza, or in this case, COVID, and then how many people die, and what are the brackets there, those are all fundamentally what we call a funnel issue. So in marketing and sales, and in sort of data analytics, which is my specialty, you look at that and you say, okay, I have so many leads coming in and those leads come into opportunities that I can close for customers. And then so many of those close for customers. 
And if they come off the internet, I know there's a certain percentage that'll close. If they come up from referral, I know more percentages are gonna close. And so you have this sort of funnel thing in mind. So they built this model in this way, this group we're talking about, the Murray model, the HMEI model. And what they were trying to do was this, was take the legitimate actual deaths, okay? So they wanted to update those on a regular basis and say, hear what the deaths show, and then reverse engineer it and say, if those deaths take place in the way we think they're going to do as we project out, what would have been the hospital burdens that would have taken place up above in each of the states, right? And, and I get that that's a legitimate issue, which is to say, we know we're not going to stop deaths right now because we don't have a vaccine. We don't have a lot of treatments toward this thing. So what are the things that the states need for, okay? And that is a legitimate thing that you can do. The problem is they modeled this in a specific way and they went up a level, right? So you know, in sales, you might say, well, here are my customers. Well, if I had these many customers, how many opportunities would that be? Then how many leads would have come and where would they have come from? And what are all the factors, percentages, and everything else? That's what they tried to do, but they stopped, right? They said, we're gonna have um, in New York 12,000 deaths, and that's gonna mean that they're gonna need 140,000 beds on here with these many ICUs, these many ventilators, because that would assume that there's a bit of an overburden there in the hospitals and everything is gonna go to pot, right? But they didn't take it up a level. So for example, on the 15th, and I think their numbers, like you said, are changing all the time. Uh, they predicted at one point that there would be 37,000 deaths on April 15th. That was gonna be the high water mark, right? But they didn't take it, and they said, well, that's gonna mean like 250,000 people in hospital beds, right? But what they did is they didn't take it up to the logical level because if there are 140 or 200,000 people in hospital beds, and we know that roughly between 10 and 15% of COVID patients need hospitalization, that would mean that you would need a million plus people who have already been positively identified as COVID patients, maybe a million five, maybe two million, right? And that would mean that you would have had to administered by April 15th about six to eight million tests. And right now I think we're at three million or so tests and everything. So that they just didn't logically take it up the funnel. And I think that's where they failed is they didn't think about all the logistics as to where this thing was actually going to go. So well, where did they, where did they the start? Problem. Where did like well, where, how, where I mean, yeah, they, they you, you mentioned deaths. like 12,000, like they predicted 12,000. Where do they get that number? What, well, like, where? what they do is they, they take their algorithms, right? And they project out. And what they give you in these models, right? They give you a, a medium bound and an upper bound and a lower bound. And I think what, what they, they, they're sort of like this catch 22, right? They claim that the deaths to project the hospitalizations and then those same hospitalizations would project future deaths. And so it, it's unclear, like they, they give us all the numbers that we can download but they don't tell you the relation between the numbers. But and that's even the algorithm, where's the algorithm? Where's the algorithm? We don't know. And, and I think what has been most powerful about this, and we, we exposed this uh, on April 2nd when we went through all the charts and just showed how dramatically they were off. I think one, they didn't anticipate that the states were going to publish their hospitalization rates, right? Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden when those started coming out, they go, whoa, we are way off, right? They thought they could kind of just, I don't know if they thought they could hide that or if that wasn't going to be an issue or if they just completely misjudged it, right? Uh, I will tell you what I think is going on and I'll put it in this analogy. And this is the kindest interpretation because I, I watch Dr. Fauci and I watch Dr. Burks and it's probably, it's really easy for me to get angry at them, especially when, you know, I'm watching yeah. my clients fade away. Uh, but I, I would say, here's the kindest interpretation I could say of what they're doing that, you know, they're, they're kind of like pilots. All right. Every year, about a third of all airlines, and there's many airlines you don't know about, fail. And the reason, and a lot more are going to fail this year, but uh, mm -hmm. those airlines fail because typically they were started by pilots and pilots are famously risk averse. So they don't take the business and the real life risks that you need to run a business and to produce the capital, right? Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci are like really, really cautious pilots, right? And so if, if you were like, well, look, my job is to make sure that, you know, everyone gets through this alive and, and you know, you're up here in the sky 
And you go, well, I, I can't really land the plane in that storm. You, no, no, you really shouldn't land the plane, Mr. Trump. We really shouldn't do this. I'm going to land you down there, but you can't do it, right? At some point, you have to land the plane because you're going to run out of gas. And that's really what it comes down to. Everyone's playing their role. And right now, I'm hoping that the president kind of steps up and plays his role to say, we need to take the risk and get the people back to work. Justin, can we back up just a little bit here? And how did we go from, and what you're, what you're talking about, deaths driving the hospitalization need, the original social distancing policy, first of all, was six feet for a prolonged uh, amount of time with somebody who was expressing symptoms, right? That was the first social distancing policy. And then we got to the flatten the curve. But what, what was the flatten the curve? The flatten the curve was to limit to prevent overtaxing our hospitals and healthcare system, right? Correct. It was never eliminating a virus because that's not going to happen. It was to make sure this all didn't hit across the country at one time, which we could talk about a little bit. I suspect it already happened, but that was the narr- that was the, the the menace at the beginning. How did we get from that to the Ferguson model, then to the Murray model, and now where we are today, which is it's completely imploded. Well, first of all, that's that's all muddy, right? The only sort of entry point we have was here is where we are. We think the virus will do X, right? And that's where we started out in mid-March. And I remember my my first piece was on March 9th. And I said this, I, said, I think my piece was called uh, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Coronavirus, right? A little play on <laughs> Dr. Goodluck. But the idea was, the, the models that they were using to say, this is the harbinger of doom, the apocalypse, the contagion movie virus, I said, no, it's not. And none of the data supports that. I'm not a virologist, but I'm a good data architect. And I'm telling you, that's not the case. And that's where it started from there. From that point, then they started introducing the models to say, well, what will this do to our system? And that's where the flatten the curve happened, which you are correct. It's not about stopping the virus. It's about lowering the impact on our hospitals. Well, now we have hospital workers on furlough because I don't think they anticipated how robust our system is. I mean, we literally have like three times as many uh, ICU beds as like Italy or anyone else there. And I don't think people really took that seriously that we we were a really robust healthcare system. And I felt like we could have surged to do to to handle that. Certainly it could have been handled on a regional issue and a basis there. Here's a case in point. A thousand people have died in Missouri, okay? In the state of Missouri, a thousand people have died of influenza this year. Now that's a serious jump for them, right? But you don't see the headlines for that. We don't have massive memorials and flags of half staff for those folks. We're not bombarded by those dashboards constantly in front of our face. And that was the turning point. And I wrote this article on, on March 18th, which was the Corona dashboards will doom us all. And that's really what happened is now you had this focal point where you, you could see like, you know, the debt dashboard, these stats just constantly aggregating. But in your mind now, you know, you consider everything, even the, the confirmed cases to be the equivalent of like another 200,000 people contracted AIDS. And that's not the case because 90% of these people are going on to normalize already, right? And so it's it's a really, really difficult comparison when those dashboards are constantly in your face. If we did that for the seasonal influenza, we would all go hysterical every single day. Um, it, and I don't know. So can you talk about some of the bigger discrepancies that you've picked up in the Marie models, either overall or by state, certain states? <clears throat> yeah. So, for example, they had pegged. Uh, Alabama to be one of the largest hit states that they anticipated Alabama would have uh, several thousand deaths and that uh, they would need 20,000 beds for the COVID patients and several thousand ventilators and ICU beds. And to date, they've had 68 deaths. So a massive, massive miss on that scale. Uh, I think also they were anticipating that Louisiana would topple. Well, they've been doing okay. They had a big rough patch there, but it seems like they're hanging in there, right? 
And the, there's a perfect example there. Louisiana is one of the few states to actually publish not just how many people are in the hospital, not just positive tests by county and by, uh, by district, but also ventilators, right? At this point, in their original models, they felt like Louisiana would need two, three, four thousand, five thousand ventilators. And currently they have 490 that are in use. And I think that's only gone up by about 50 over the last week or so. Well, so Cuomo said he needed 30,000. Remember, we were getting all these like crazy demands right. for resources. Right. How 30,000 ventilators. He needed those. Vent- and now yeah. they're giving them away to other states. Right. Well, and I think that's 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 really the issue. Look, if you can't buy in to the issue of you know what I'm proposing, which is we could have absorbed the blow without the shutdown, you can at least buy in to this notion. Our scarce resources deserve better models, right? Because states were now planning and purchasing and using massive amounts of taxpayer dollars to buy ventilators, to get staff, to move other staff off of campus, to prepare multiple levels, the boats that you mentioned, the Javits Center, all of these things to just get ready for the big surge that never came. And, you know, for example, California, Governor Newsom, to his credit, he spent a lot of money to get a lot of ventilators. We don't need them. He just shipped 500 of them off to the hotspots in New Jersey and New York. And, and so, you know, but if you're a state and you're like, well, look, you know, I'm kind of like a, a lowly state. And I know that my model has changed. I was basing everything on that model. Am I really going to feel comfortable to give up those ventilators if I still have that nervousness? So we have misallocated serious resources. At the very least, our scarce resources deserve better models than this. Well, and what are we going to do with all this? Now we have like what one ventilator per citizen or something like we have so many, so many things now like these ventilators. And I think probably some other medical supplies What what do we need that many ventilators? And and then if they don't if you don't use them, I think that they I don't know if they go bad, but they they, I know that some of them that were in our um, our our stockpile were didn't work or didn't work anymore or had trouble. So this is just kind of the, this is kind of a waste of money in a way. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I mean, look, COVID-19 is a nasty virus bug. Okay. Now some may downplay it as far as it being the flu. I think it's higher level. It's probably more impactful for certain there, but it's, it, it is a good argument that you can make that we could have absorbed this blow while sheltering those that were most needed. Um, Professor Iona did this. I'm going to, just slaughter his name. I can't remember. So he's called oh, Professor yeah. I. Yeah, he's great. And, and he is. He's been really fantastic. He has come out. He gave. He gave myself. Uh, he he sent us a preview of a study that he has just come out with, um, which will be published here in the next week or so, comparing sort of from from the numbers we have in Europe, what the risks are for people that are under 65 of getting and being harmed by coronavirus or you know, a death by coronavirus. And essentially, if you are under the age of 65 and you basically have the same chance of dying from coronavirus as you do from commuting in a car. If you're towards the New York area, slightly higher. But literally, it's like 17 to 15 times less risk death if you're over the age of 65. And, And so that whole thing has been just a fiasco and I think when people really look like, because here's the problem, like I've got good friends who are posting these these things like, well, look at these nine people who died, you know, who were under 20. And that is really tragic. Right. And you see that. And a lot of those had to go with comorbidities. But let's put it in, let's put it in these terms. I can do those statistics, too. We know that COVID-19 has been hugely kind to infants, uh, to children who are under the age of four. Right. If COVID killed uh children at the same rate that influenza does, we would have 20 to 30 four-year-olds and younger dead now, and we would have about 200 people under the age of 17 dead. So uh, put it in those terms, these are, the you know, this is basically a very, very different virus in some ways than the flu. But the question is, could we have managed it like the flu? I don't know. We'll never know because we've just bought the farm on this, right? Well- and here I'm sorry, Justin, to interrupt. I'm sorry, but um, I there is a chance if you look at the influenza-like illness activity this year, 
starting the last week of December all the way through till the end of February, um, there were huge spikes in influenza-like illness activity across the country. Is there a chance, and this is the modeling that I've been waiting to see that for some reason we don't see, the possibility, now we know that the virus has been here since at least the middle of January when the first confirmed case was reported in Washington. Um, and given what we've been told about its contagion uh, rate, is there a possibility that this already swept through most of the country before we started widespread testing in the middle of March? So March 17th, I wrote an article on Medium and it was, has coronavirus been here since last year? So I had that same piece and what I did and and my own curiosity with this happened about two years ago when I was hospitalized for 12 days here in San Diego with a staph infection. I got a cut in my elbow and that natural flora oh, that you have geez. on your skin. And then I went into septic shock. And then I was only in the hospital that I realized I had a one in three chance of dying then. And I wanted to understand what is this thing that just about killed me that came from my own skin. And so I got into sort of that whole network of viruses and how this works. And I realized that the CDC has what's called a uh, a flu surveillance network, okay? Yeah. And this is one of the benefits, but it's also one of the big failures in this moment. And what it showed, for example, in Washington state was a huge burst of year-over-year -year increases in the number of flu visits to the doctor, okay? And, and when they looked at that, it was it was became clear that something was going on there. So it could be that that was the case, that there were some elements of that. The, the, the earliest sort of genetic code that we have is in uh, January. So mm -hmm. a, a geneticist DNA tracking the code would say it probably maybe went just before that, but probably not too far before that. Oh, no, there's still some stuff to look out now. Professor I had another article that came out yesterday, and this one was about Italy, and this one was intriguing to me, too. Because it actually has an inverse um, sort of theory. And actually, these two can exist at the same time, but it could go towards the New York area. Uh, in Italy, what he showed was that it was a rather mild winter when they usually have a host of flu-related, influenza-related deaths. And so what happened is you had a lot of people who probably would have died during the flu season but didn't and became very susceptible fodder for the COVID-19 when it did come. And so it could be that in some areas, a low flu season could create that sort of underbrush that just creates this fire of things. That could be what happened in New York. Connecticut had a high flu season. New York's was rather mild. And so it would be interesting to sort of see that correlation. We don't know a lot of this. A lot of this is not going to be one. You know, here is my sort of humble pie that I have to eat right now. I'm not going to win this argument. Right. I can't convince people that, you know, we we should have, you know, kept the, the people safe that would have been safe, but we shouldn't have shut down the government. I'm OK with that. Right now, I'm focusing on just getting everybody back to work. That's my main thing. I would do that through data analysis to show at some point that gap becomes so large that you have to say it's time to move on. Uh, so um, what does that moving on because I'm with you, and I think you and I, in a, it, we're in a tough position a, a little bit because we've all been, I mean, I, I believe you've been a Trump supporter. Obviously, I am. Mm -hmm. Liz is, too. Um, but there's this weird uh, split on the Trump-supporting right, I think, of people who want to stay with whatever the White House is saying. They want to believe that there was some integrity to the Murray model. They want to believe that these extreme CDC guidelines that changed, you know, day by day were necessary and need to be put in place by this magical April 30th date, which we don't know what, where that date came from. Um, so, and I, I think we put ourselves in a little bit of, not of a tough spot because it's not, because we need the truth and we want our lives back and we want the economy back and we want 17 million plus people to get their jobs back and not keep bailing out, printing make-believe money to, to bail people out because they have no choice in this uh, position. But um, what what's your analysis of how the president has handled this matter the last week or so? Well, I, 
think, look, he's been, he has a great rapport at the stand there where his sort of authentic self gives a little bit of calmness to the whole scene, right? And his flow of bringing people up and talking and bringing them down, I think that actually works pretty well. And again, if I'm attributing the best intentions, I know they want what's best. But I think he's in a tough spot, too, where he doesn't, you know, he, he, he knows that if he had not shut down the country and there had been a death anywhere that, you know, they would have pinned it on his head. But at some point, he knows he has to pivot. And I think that's going to come early next week. I think he basically said, I can give this another two weeks. I don't think he totally realizes the damage that's done already. Right. Because right. In, in an efficient economy, which we had before, you as a business owner, you indulge certain inefficiencies, right? You say, I may have this employee who's in marketing. He's not the best, but he's okay. He gets the job done. But right now I've got to focus on sales. So it's not my big concern. When you've now let those people go, which a lot of people have, you're not going to hire those back because you have no guarantee, especially in this environment, that the government is going to not shut you down again in a month, right? And I think there's a lot of science. There's a lot of convincing that people need to do. And here's the larger picture, which is there are a lot of people that feel like this was a complete overshot. I think even though I'm not winning this argument now, I am confident a year and two from now, people look back and say, wow, we really did overthink that and overshoot mm -hmm. the mark. But here's the deal. When the real pandemic comes, how much of that, my first reaction will be cry wolf. And my second reaction will be, holy crap, I hope it's not the real thing because it's going to be difficult for me to stomach going through this again, right? We <laughs> used our one silver bullet on this mode and it was the wrong virus. Well, who trusts the government on, I mean, I, I feel like this, this has really shown people who don't pay attention to how the sausage is made about how our government functions. Um, especially like you mentioned in the big pandemic, we see our FDA, our CDC, just unbelievable red tape. Still, we're still seeing red tape there for innovators for they blew the tests. They screwed that up. They wouldn't give approval for outside companies. A lot of people at the beginning were saying, well, South Korea, look what South Korea did. Well, yes, South Korea had four private companies come up with their test, but why would any private company in the United States come up and do a test when it would just be put up in in two years of FDA regulatory um, examination? So I, I think that this has been an opportunity for people to kind of get a sense of what a drag some of these federal agencies are, especially when it comes to mobilizing quickly. But I do agree with you. There's a lot of trust that's 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 gone. And I, just yes. to speak to your point about the president. I'm a little sympathetic to him because if imagine if you, you he's a, he's about as, as far away from data or not maybe not data but as far away from like science and medicine as as, as most everybody right he right. he has no idea and he's got these experts and he seems unusually deferential to people with letters behind their names and like credentials from institutions that are held in high regard by the the left and the elite and you know he has these people coming to him and say there's gonna be two million people are gonna die i mean right. how does he know any different he has to trust these people i mean a lot of regular people don't think that scientists have an agenda or a bias and i'm not necessarily saying fauci or burks or any of these other this other crowd on the the, the team are malicious but I think that the public health industry as a whole does lean left. And yeah. and so these I don't think Trump 100 percent understands that. He just thinks, well, they're scientists. Right. And they're, they're out the truth. They're telling me the truth. So when they come and say there's going to be two million people are going to die. Really, if you think of it if, as some layperson, that scares the hell out of you. So I I do kind of understand. And now he's at a point where what yeah. he, he kind of it's it, I, I hate to say you know, he doesn't want to throw good money after bad, but I do understand his position, but he, he has enough of the other side of it now from, from people and others who have intervened and talked to him and taken him aside and go, Hey, you, you gotta, you yeah. know, you, you gotta, you gotta change this. And he can now change course because I don't think the economy is going to 
snap back the way that he says, and maybe he's just saying that to keep morale up. But again, if everyone's laid off or furloughed and the public is, is scared, people are terrified from the way that this has been hyped up and the images that we yeah. saw from China and Italy. And then the media is just, if it bleeds, it leads. It's just like a snuff show every night on CNN. And then they open up the economy. Who's going to run out and start getting germs all over them anytime soon? I absolutely agree. I actually, I, you know, because I've been an ardent supporter from Donald of Donald Trump since when he first took the stage, and that has been a point of contention for myself and my, uh, you know, immediate sort of friends in the Romney campaign or otherwise that I supported him so fervently. But here's the deal, and this is a warning because I want him to win, but I feel that he, when he made the decision the other week, was that just ten days ago? I don't know to keep us locked down for another thirty days. I said publicly that is the day he lost the election because elections are won on enthusiasm. Elections are won on excitement. That's how you get over that, right? We almost won against Obama with Romney, but we couldn't get that enthusiasm level up there. Trump had that enthusiasm level, but I'll tell you, when you've lost your job, it's hard to get up in the and vote for the guy that you know had some influence on you losing that job, right? If this thing doesn't recover and you have six to 10 million people still out of work by the election, he, he's lost because regardless of what you think and what the science tells you would have happened if you hadn't, because you can't prove them otherwise, you're just not going to find that excitement and enthusiasm, right? And you're right. Everything has changed from here on out. I, I go to this grocery store now and there's plexiglass and all the workers are wearing masks and, and they want me to wear a mask and I said, I'm not going to wear a mask. Don't let me wear a mask. Right. And then no. LA, they're mandating you wear a mask. And I, I, I wrote this down um, mid-March. I said, look, I hope that Donald Trump opens us up, but I guarantee you when it does, this will be the new climate change, right? This will be, you know, I, I, I don't expect here in California that anything is going to open up anytime soon. I could be wrong. And maybe they'll look at Texas opening up and they'll go, well, we got we got to have that competition. So let's go ahead and open up in the right way. But I feel like this will be the new climate change. They will start to pin it on him. But you can see already. Now, here's the irony of the whole thing is that there is a very, very powerful thing that the left could use against Trump if they wanted to. Right. Which is to say, you guys were baking the model up. And Chris Hayes alluded to this yesterday right. on Twitter. You're, you're pushing this up to basically win the bet, right? That it was all fake and you, you know, the model was never, you know, you, it was never going to be this drastic to make it this drastic, right? So if they can't beat them on the deaths, they're going to beat them on the other round. But here's the thing, <clears throat> because the left is so bought in to the deaths, it's hard for them to turn around and do anything else, right? So and You yeah. know what, Justin? I saw that early on from Trump supporters after Trump made that announcement um, based on the Murray model extending the CDC guidelines uh, to April 30th. And I saw people saying, well, you know, this will be great because then if we come under 2 million deaths or 240,000 deaths and it only ends up being 100,000 or 80,000, then he looks like he saved a million people. And my response was, well, but that's such a cynical ploy. First of all, he he didn't he doesn't need that. It's such a cynical ploy. But look at the consequences of doing that. And well, um, I mean, it is far tragic what's happening. Not and you know you say the economy, but we're talking about it tens of millions of families and millions yeah. of small businesses. And um, you know I met with a. a a local business owner here in Southwest Florida. I talked to him yesterday. He runs this beautiful grocery store that he's kept open. He's a huge Trump supporter. And he was talking about all the food supply chain and the agriculture supply chain and how it's basically just been shut down from the South and Florida to the Northeast because, of course, mm -hmm. the restaurants are closed, the schools are closed, you know, a lot of the specialty stores are closed, uh, grocers are closed. He said to me, we won't be back to where we were until two years from now. It's going to be rough. Like I, I had this uh, insight that someone gave to me that I didn't understand until I thought about it, which is to say the reason why toilet paper is still scarce to come by, right, isn't necessarily a run on toilet paper. 
It's that, <clears throat> shall I put it, half of us were doing our stuff elsewhere at work, right? And now well, that's true. all of us are doing it. And so all of a sudden the paper companies that are manufacturing this had to shift from that terrible stuff you get at Starbucks or wherever to the stuff you use at home. And that doesn't happen overnight. And that's why the shelves are still empty, at least of where I am. And I can't get ramen. You want to ship me? You, have, you guys get ramen down there? My kids are killing me that I go to the store and come back empty-handed without ramen every day. Oh, geez, that's a good but point. I'll, I'll look. I'll look for you in Florida. There might be some here. If there is, I'll ship you a bunch. Now, here's I what I propose. This... I, I'm actually coming up with this. I may launch it tomorrow, and maybe I can get you enlist your help there. Would be next Wednesday if we don't see some serious movement on this thing. It's uh, Ash Wednesday, and everyone likes. I'm I'm, I'm a Mormon, but I. I, I love it when I see, uh, you know, the uh, the forehead smeared there and everything else. So I don't know if that's going to happen this year or not. But that's always fun to have that conversation at work. And um, it is tax day after all. And you do have to pay your taxes in the end. And so how about we do this? How about we create a bring yourself to work day? Not not bring your kids to work day. Bring yourself to work <laughs> day. And, and that, whatever that means to you, I think we start a national movement to get people to say, I'm just going to go to work because at some point when you're facing foreclosure, when, uh, you know, you've gone through the, the pittance that you get from the government, uh, when your landlord has basically uh, had it with you, when you've got to provide for your family, it uh, becomes an essential job and you will go to it. I mean, I will literally just, you know, I'm going to go to my job and get it done. Now, my job is done a lot virtually, but I have a, you know, I have several clients that, just are going to fold and they are folding now. And unless something happens quickly, uh, I lose my clientele and I lose my business. Well, There's def definitely consequences to this that we have not yet imagined. It reminds me, this is going to be a chapter in the next Freakonomics, right? Where there's right. something else that nobody predicted. I wish I could predict it and then I could monetize it and get rich, but I haven't thought of what that is yet. But there's definitely going to be a lot of shifts and changes in our culture um, from this and a lot of businesses that are no longer around. I think the way people d like dine is going to change. Um, and also I was talking to a friend um, about this, th th that this kind of change is actually traumatic. This, this very rapid and extreme change um, that there's just no telling the way in which our everyday lives are going to change. And I don't know how much longer the toilet paper is going to get hoarded. Um, they're rationing it out here in Northern Virginia where you have to go to the service desk and say like, may I please get really? a package of toilet? Yes. Um, and I, I'm somewhat of a prepper and I kind of thought this was going to get bad. So we are in no way short of toilet paper. However, they, when I went to the market a couple days ago, there was a sign and it said there was like a, big pile of toilet paper and it said you had to like get permission to like get one package of toilet paper with like 12 rolls and anyway, I got it because I'm not gonna lie I look I don't know what's going on I'm not I'm not a hoarder by nature yeah. but everybody's kind of panicked people you you can tell by going into the grocery store the kinds oh. of things that are missing from the shelves yeah. as to like for instance sugar there was no sugar yeah. in the stores why no flour no yeast but, but uh, what, what well, yeah. why? Like, if you're if you're in for the long haul, you should be getting like canned goods, tuna, things that last a long time. Instead, there's no sugar. Also, nobody bothered for the Impossible Burgers. Those plenty of those. <laughs> I'm Jewish. Right, you can see also, chicken, chicken yeah. was so cheap. They had hordes of chicken out there. I was getting eight, ten breasts for like three bucks all together. And I don't, you know, I'm sure it's different in different areas, but it's just like. I think it's just it is a mass chaos and it's not going to be resolving itself anytime soon. And I think the sooner that we can get back to work and have the assurances that this isn't going to happen again, because I didn't vote for Fauci or Burks or That's Scott right. McGobleeb, whoever he is. And, and I don't need right. them telling me uh -oh. you know, how the, to live my life. Right? He said the name. Oh, Scott Lieb. Oh, no. Yeah. Not a fan. Liz. Yeah. I, 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 I fight with him all the time here. He, he ignores every tweet, but uh, I think he has a restraining everywhere. order against me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sure. I had issues. I had issues with his um, e-cigarette policies because I do. I study that, and 
what I, I already have issues with him. He probably has a restraining order. I may be blocked on Twitter, but he is not a reliable person, especially with his new plan of like mass surveillance. Right. Isn't he the one saying we should get chips in us and we can yeah. just, you know, monitor us like on a yeah. sort of computer screen? How like crazy money is man? that yeah. contact tracing thing? Like, well, listen, no. listen, contact tracing can be positive in certain ways, but once it becomes sort of, you know, and, and they do point, they do refer to it as surveillance, but that has other connotations. And the way they're talking about it has very, very deep connotations. So we have to be very yes. careful there. But and at this also, point, yeah. it's it's ridiculous. Like at yeah. this stage where it's probably so many people have been exposed already that and we have a, we have like a or we allegedly have a, a health emergency going on right now. I can understand if you get in one place and like in Germany where it started in Munich and they traced all of that, that makes more sense. But now at this point, it's like we're going to start how how on earth where we get the resources yeah, to do that. All the numbers are coming are in the direction that I want them to. Uh, and I think we're going to have a, a, a really interesting discussion here in a week or so when there's a, a serology test that's going on uh, in the Stanford area, in the Santa Clara area. And we're going to know very quickly what sort of antibody sort of prevalence they are, right? When Dr. Burks, you know, admitted that they may have the sort of progression of the, trans, the transmission wrong, and it may be a huge thing underneath, like just the tip of the iceberg that we're seeing, right? In which case, like the fatality rate is nothing and we've all have been exposed in a certain way. But we don't know any of that. Now, here's your conspiracy theory of the day. You brought up the uh, uh, the, the the vaping, right? Consider uh-huh. that a lot of that crisis that we saw late last year had a lot of similar sort of symptoms oh, as COVID. I've already written but, that article. Okay. Oh, I've already written that story. Wait, oh, yeah. All right. Well, we'll get, we're going to get in trouble for all this. But like, here's a here's a table that I just got from Aaron. So Aaron and I are back and forth. You know, Aaron had that great article. He was much better at me than getting his article out there. He's such a, he's just an incredible marketer. But he got his article, which was a really just layout of everything that was wrong with the virus stats. And that went viral on Medium. Medium shut him down and he had to go to yeah. zero, right? Right. And, and, and but he, he just sent me a chart um, where in Italy, they've, they've now done a study of uh, healthcare professionals that were exposed to COVID, right? And the death rate upon them is like so small. Altogether, it was a 0.17 death rate out of 6,300 cases distributed across age groups and no deaths under the age of 50, okay? And so there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be worked out. But we know that um, we, we know that you know, I will say this much. right? We don't know if the fatality rate is going to be right towards influenza. It's going to be higher than influenza. We do know that these symptoms are different than influenza. And that's something that's legitimate. Like you don't you don't necessarily or usually get put on a ventilator for influenza. And there's some issues around ventilators. I know that, too. But I think that, so that there's things that we need to be concerned of. But I think it's absolutely legitimate for us to ask the question, could we have handled this in a different way without shutting down the world economy? And I think the answer is increasingly yes, and we screwed up, right? We, we, we shot ourselves in the foot, we spent the silver bullet, and now when a real contagion comes along that's going to be very serious, then you know who knows what's going to happen then. Do you get the sense that there wasn't um... – alternatives presented to the president because that's that's what i think that instead of going in and saying these are the different possible scenarios starting from we do nothing we shut everything down and then also we enforce these things or we require these things and so that you had different grades i have a feeling like trump was just given the option to either do nothing or just shut it down that look i think here's that's my fear I think that's probably true. I think models are errant, right? My my initial projections were way off. I thought we wouldn't reach 10,000 deaths until July. I put the high end or the middle end of where I think we'll end up at about 22 million. Maybe it'll be that we may hit 22 before you know before April is out. For all intents and purposes, that's very very likely. In the 22,000. 22,000. That's not. Yeah, I, I said that would basically what we'd see probably for the rest of the year is altogether about 22 to 40,000 deaths. OK, but here's the big issue. You usually don't bet the farm, the collective farm 
on these type of models. And if you do, you should weigh that very seriously. And it's amazing what sort of rights that we've given up very quickly. And I understand the urgency of it. The president deserved better numbers, better models to make these decisions. He certainly deserved better voices to help him there. I can understand why he got scared. My parents, you know, are in their 70s and, you know, they they're very concerned about this whole thing. I try to walk them off the cliff every now and then and say, don't don't be scared. It's going to be OK, but be safe. Right. Because they do, they are at risk. And in fact, I'm at risk because of you know what I went through two years ago and I had pleurisy of the lungs and I'm probably at a, at a higher level. But at some point, again, that risk reward ratio flips, and you realize there's no reason why I can't get to my plow right now and get some stuff done. Justin, before we let you go, um, can you talk a little bit about the CDC guide, guidelines? I wrote an article about it this week, and I think that in terms of projections and predictions and you know, ex getting exactly the right, or as close to the right number as we can in terms of fatalities, um, the CDC guidelines not only offer a tremendous amount of leeway for medical examiners or, uh, you know, certifying officials on a death certificate to list COVID-19 as the probable or presumed cause of death. They actually tell these officials they don't even need to administer a test to confirm the presence <laughs> of COVID-19. Um, yeah. So we are... So the numbers, you know, the thumb is on the scale, the books are getting cooked, just like they do with climate um, and some other things. So in, how important is it for the American public to get a clear understanding of healthy people who were attacked by this virus, who were out running one day and five days later were on a ventilator because of this, which was basically what we were warned about. Nobody said a million deaths or 100 to 240,000 deaths of your average American, right? That this was going to be yeah, nationwide, yeah. that everyone was susceptible to this because of its lethality versus what Dr. Burks, I think, so arrogantly said yesterday, and this would have been Wednesday night, that, well, of course, everybody knows that most of the people who died in Italy had at least three comorbidities who died of, well, I, I didn't know that, and I guarantee you the overwhelming majority of Americans don't know that either. So let's yeah. speak a little bit before you go about the importance of, you know, specificity and granularity, as Dr. Burks likes to say, of uh, fatality data. Yeah, yeah. this has been a huge issue because the, the, the main core problem with everything that we're seeing is that we are trying to apply the urgency of voting, of, of, of counting ballots into counting deaths, right? That's why the dashboards are all in front of us is we're so used to those coming up on election night and seeing all those come in. But there are two issues. One is the way they count the data and when they count the data, okay? Let me take that last one first just real quickly because it's really important. When you freak out about, for example, uh, a report from Italy or a report from New York, the one from Italy a few weeks ago was that 800 people had died overnight. I guarantee you that was not the case, not because there weren't deaths, there were 800 deaths, but they all came in different times. You guys are in elections, you know how this works. So when you see a count here in the US that York saying, oh, my God, 200 plus or 300 or 500 deaths yesterday, right, on their count, what that means and how that got there is that someone at a hospital noted someone who had the coronavirus and died of it or had it and died of something else, and they're noting it in a specific way. And sometimes in the case of the New York City case, they actually go back and just say, well, if they match these characteristics, we don't have time to count them individually. Let's just say they were in the hospital for this, right? right. Now, that, that hospitalization count and death count get rolled up from the provider to the county. And the county says, well, is our webmaster home? Yeah, he's home. Okay, well, I'm making sure he upstates the dates, right, on those things and send it on to the state. And then the state says, oh, we got that? Okay, let's plug that into our dashboard. And then meanwhile, the dashboard guys have bots that go out and say, take a picture of this dashboard and compare it to the previous dashboard. And so literally we are freaking out about bot screen scrapers that are scraping data. That's the only thing. We only have the reported date. 
right? What we need is the test date, that is when they took the test, when they got the result, when they got hospitalized, the date of hospitalization admission, the date of death. There's only one, New York City is the only place that provides that information. And when you look at it, you see that we're on the downside of the curve because all you see is the upside because everything gets sort of packaged up to the front. I'll give you an example real quick that'll make sense. You know, you heard about Pink, the singer, right? And how she she got uh, diagnosed with the COVID, with the coronavirus, right? You heard right. about that? Yeah. So I she's out that. of Pennsylvania <clears throat> in Drake County, okay? She told us a few weeks ago that she got tested. She tested positive. She got tested a few days ago. It came back negative, okay? But her doctor was a private doctor. And it was only this last week that President, Vice President Pence and Dr. Burks mandated that uh, by law, you need to send the test results up to the county and up to the state. So that positive test result that that Pink took three weeks ago and the, the negative one that she took three days ago probably got reported on the same day to Drake, which got up to the top. So you have, uh, uh, first of all, it's a test and a negative test that belong to the same person and they're being reported on the same day, negating each other. It's the weirdest thing in the world. The data is so bad all the way down. I've made this point before, Julie, right? Which is there's no normative. The data is not normative. We don't know when someone was tested, when the results are in, and then we're making these bell curves. And it's like, look, if if you just got your result reported to this county today, but you took your test five days ago, where your result, you're not really making, it's not really accurate to use it in today's count and say, Oh, it's getting higher because it's like, well, you took your test four days ago. And the fact is at the beginning, especially some of the tests were taking over like 10 days to get back. Right. And when are they when are they being charted? So it's it as somebody as a someone who works with data, this I'm cringing. I'm all whenever I start yeah. thinking about how dirty this data is and God knows what they're going to use it for in the future. Bad yeah, things. at one point, for example, the New York Times, which tracks down to the county level and provides that data, all of a sudden, like somewhere around April 2nd or 3rd, they showed a county named Unknown with 700 or 800 deaths. <laughs> <laughs> and that was because they went down to the county level and said, OK, how many deaths do you have? And then they went to the Cuomo presser and Cuomo said, we have this many deaths. And they go, holy crap, we've got a deficit. What do we do? We'll just put it into a county named Unknown. <laughs> and and slowly over time, that's been like shifting here and there. And I think they finally said, oh, I think it comes from Manhattan. So they put it in Manhattan, right? So it, it, it's such a mess of data. And look, that's partly on us, right? And partly on the press is that we demand that instant sort of ballot node thing. But this is like the worst case of uh, hanging chads and everything else from that scenario. And we literally won't know. Like literally the, the only numbers I use from the CDC when I'm comparing to influenza is the 2017-18 data because that's what they recommend. It takes them two years for that data to sort of normalize where they feel it. And here's the crux of the issue in the end. The CDC notes that during the 2017-18 season, it was a high mark. It was like one of the worst seasons there. Right. 61,000 deaths. Or because we don't have that certainty of data, the what we call the uncertainty intervals, right? The level of which you're saying, I think it was in this range, is either 40,000 deaths or 100,000 deaths. And they put it in the middle at 61,000 deaths, right? And so literally every stat in this entire domain is that way. So when you say someone says, well, the CFR is at least 1%, you're like, it could be, or it could be 0.15, or it could be 2, because that's the range of the inadequate data that we have that we're making assumptions. So literally, we're betting the financial economy of the world on a domain of expertise that has a two-point dude in either direction. And that's just insane. We need to get better data and better models if this is ever going to work. Well, Justin, thank you so much for um, joining us today. And I think you've given us and our listeners some great insight into this data and the predictions and the failure of the Murray model and other concerns. So, we're very uh, grateful for your time. So glad to talk with you guys. It was a great conversation. Thanks for letting me spout off for a little bit. Love to be back on and let's hope we can get through this. Again, look for it. I think we're going to do this whole bring yourself to work day. <laughs> let's let's make it happen, okay? Justin, tell our listeners your Twitter handle, please. 
Sir, it's Justin underscore Hart. Good one. That's a good one. Liz, do you have, uh, what do you want to say as, as we sign off here? You know, I think Justin did a good job of talking about the fragility of our, quote, science that we're using to make very critical policy decisions. So we will be back next week. We will, maybe we'll be happy. We're, we, our show is called Happy Hour, but we haven't been <laughs> happy. We've been kind of crusty. It's we called Crusty Hour. Um, maybe we'll be happier next week. Who knows? Who knows? But in 14 more days is when we're going to really see this all come home, right? Yeah. That's what we're exactly. told. Exactly. That's what we need. Flatten the curve again. 14 more days. Um, so thank you for listening. We will see you. We will be back next week. And have a good week until then. Bye. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.